0: Back in the 8th century B.C., Tiglath-Pileser III was no wimp, and he was certainly no angel either. When Assyria was in the midst of a civil war, Tiglath-Pileser, he had a a different name um, before becoming king. He was just one of the governors of one of the provinces. But the nation was in a civil war, the country Assyria was. And he saw his chance. He seized the throne in a bloody coup d'etat. He slaughtered the entire royal family. He quickly consolidated his power. And he turned the Assyrian army, which was already the greatest fighting force the world had known to that point in time. But this king, he was uniquely, administratively, Gifted, he was highly effective, he considerably improved the efficiency and the security of the army, and he converted the army for the first time in in Assyria's history into a standing professional army. And then he set out to conquer the world. He rolled through the Near East, Babylon, Chaldea, the Arabian Peninsula, Moab, Eden, Armenia, Asia Minor, Greece, Persia. The list goes on and on. And around 734 BC, he turned his attention to Palestine. One side note. 200 years before this, in the middle of the 10th century, Israel had its own civil war. It had broken up as a result into two countries. The northern country kept the name Israel. So after the mid-900s BC, Israel doesn't refer to all of Israel. It only refers to the northern country whose capital city was Samaria. The southern part of the split used the name Judah, and its capital city was Jerusalem. The northern, Israel, capital, Samaria. Sometimes the northern country is called Ephraim. It's called both in in our passage this morning. The southern, Judah, with its capital, Jerusalem. So you've got Judah here in the south, and to the north you've got Israel, and near Israel is another country, Syria. Now, Israel, the northern country, and Syria, they see the steamroller heading at them. They see tiglath Pileser. They see Assyria coming toward them, wiping out everything in its path. So they, in their great wisdom, make a pact with each other. They are going to form NATO. They're going to form an alliance of countries who will stand against Assyria. So they need for this geopolitical alliance, they need Judah. They turn to Judah and they say, will you be with us in this? And Judah says, no way. We're not going to do that. So Israel and Syria say, well, if you won't join with us, there's this technique that we'll use, it'll never be used again, called regime change, where if you don't work with us, we'll put somebody else on the throne who agrees with our international politics. It was, it's something we're confused about. We've never heard of such a thing. But just try to imagine a few countries orchestrating a regime change so that their international political policy can be uh, put into effect. Now, that's where we pick up the story in Isaiah chapter 7. It's right in this moment with Assyria barreling down on on that area of the world. With Israel and Syria bearing down also. And right in that moment, in this very tense, very dangerous, dangerous, do you hear that? Seven years of speech therapy, and it's still in me. boyed and twee and dangerous. It's Emily could, could probably, she, no, she's not a speech therapist. There's some speech therapists in our church. They could probably fix it, but there you go. Right in the midst of this tension, Isaiah chapter 7. Look at verse 2. When the house of David, that's the royal family in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, when the house of David, when, when the royal family was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, remember Ephraim's another name for the northern country, Israel. The heart of Ahaz, that's the king of the southern country, and the heart of his people shook. Like the trees of the forest shake before the wind. it's panic. He's torn between two fears. On the one hand, he's received intelligence reports of large-scale troop movements on his border to the north. And they're headed his way. And the intelligence reports have also revealed to him that regime change is the singular goal. We're not trying to defeat the entire land. We're just coming after Ahaz. A whole army. But on the other hand, Assyria is coming. Can you see it in in your imagination? He's in the capital. He's in Jerusalem, a city built on a hill, which is a good defensive position. But for them, it meant their water supply was a problem. Their water supply was a series of above-ground aqueducts. And a besieging army could just break that water supply and sit tight. Hold off until the water runs out. The city goes into starvation and thirst mode. And so here we find King Ahaz personally inspecting the vulnerable water supply. And he is scared to death. He's so scared, the country of Judah and its king, they are in such a panic that they're actually considering an alliance with Assyria. Now, Assyria's track record is, Assyria doesn't help anybody but themselves. This is so short-sighted. This is so foolish. The government is a plan, it's planning to achieve security from these two little bitty warring nations by entering into an agreement with this giant warring nation. So God tells Assyria. God tells Isaiah, the prophet. You got to talk to Ahaz. You need to calm him down. And tell him to trust me. So Isaiah goes, and they have this meeting right in this most vulnerable spot of the city, this aqueduct. The king is scared to death. He's so afraid, he's making the wrong, the catastrophically wrong decision that anybody looking can see. But that's what fear does to us, right? I mean, he's not the only person who's ever, out of fear, done something really unfortunate. I'm sure a lot of us here can relate. Think about how fear of rejection can cause us to do things that just a little bit of perspective says, that's crazy. Or just fill in the blank. So that's the moment. The prophet says four things. Look what he says in verse 4. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart faint. This is four kind, gentle imperatives. Be careful, be quiet, chill out. Take a deep breath. Don't fear. And don't let your heart faint. And then he goes on to say in verse seven here's why you don't have to fear. Because God has said this plan, Pekah and Rezin, these two kings of of Israel and Syria, it's not going to stand. It shall not come to pass. Doesn't that remind you of... Anybody? Anybody with me? Who? Gandalf, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sh- you shall not pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Resin. And within five years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. God, God is saying, look, This is not going to happen. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So Isaiah is saying this boils down to you trusting in God. In this moment of risk, trust God. Trust that this. These countries, he says a few verses earlier, are just smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's a great image, isn't it? You get a stick out of the fire, the end of it's on fire. But in just a few moments, the fire goes out and it's red. And a few moments after that, it's black, it's gray, and then it's black, and then there's nothing. He says, that's what they are right now. they're, 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 They're scaring you to death. But just wait. This threat is not going to last. Look, these guys, King Rezin and King Pekah, you don't have to be afraid of him. They are not a serious threat. And you're a fool. If in face of such a threat, you enter into a far-reaching, terrible strategic alliance with Assyria, you're going to be okay. All you've got to do in this moment is trust God trust God and turn to God instead of turning to Assyria and trusting him. Now look, we hear this phrase trust God and we very often translate it into kind of just this amorphous metaphor. But it's not that here. It's about very practical political decisions. It is about practical decisions. One set of decisions is not trusting God. The other set of decisions is trusting God. Trusting God, having faith in God, is concrete here. You're going to be okay if you trust God. Now, if you don't trust God, if you decide instead to trust Assyria, to get in bed with Assyria, then you're done. Assyria is a tiger. And when you're being attacked by a couple of chihuahuas, you don't grab a tiger by the tail. This is not the move to make. The end of verse 9. If you don't do this, if you're not firm in faith, instead of shaking like trees in the wind, you won't be firm at all. Do you see what faith is here? Faith is a refusal to yield to the fear of danger and threat posed by these small northern neighbors. It is confidence in the face of that danger. Now Ahaz says, no, not going to do it. This happens in between the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. Either he immediately said no or he demurred at the time and his subsequent actions demonstrated his commitment to this political pact to Syria. Somehow he indicated no. So look at verse 10. Again, the Lord said, we don't know how much long later this was. It could have been right on the spot. Ahaz said no. Or it could have been several weeks later. It could have been, oh, I'll meet with my military advisors. Or it could have even been, I'll pray about it. You know, it could have, We don't know what it was. But somehow, no, not, that's not the direction. I'm, I'm not going to hold and trust god right trusting god sometimes means we wait instead of acting and do you see what god does next this is so kind he gives him a second chance he speaks to him again he doesn't demand instant obedience Look what he says in verse 10. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Anything. Like, look, at this moment, you ask anything. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. God said, do you want me to prove it? I'm offering you, look, not only am I telling you I'm going to do this, but if you want proof that I'm going to do, I'm not going to let them get you, ask, ask me a sign. You want me to give you evidence? Now, it's interesting why Ahas doesn't take him up on the offer, isn't it? I mean, life and death is on the line. Why doesn't he? And, And he quotes the same passage of Scripture that Jesus quotes when Jesus is resisting Satan's temptation, Right? It is written, thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test. This is a weird little thing. Ahaz says, oh, no, no, no. I could never test God. You know what he's doing? He's shrouding his unwillingness to believe, to have faith in the one true God. He's shrouding it in a veil of piety. Funny. Funny. Sometimes God disapproves of people who want signs. If if you're familiar with the gospel, some of you might be thinking there's some passages where Jesus chastises people for asking for signs. But other times in the Bible, God offers signs. He grants signs. Some of you are familiar with the story of Gideon. He asked for a sign not because he doubted or disbelieved but because he wanted to be doubly certain that the particular path he was going was the will of God. And in his case, seeking a sign was an expression of a deep believing commitment to God. Janelle and I once had this experience in quite a profound way I've told this story before. Um, We were Living in New Orleans, I was in seminary, which is like grad school for pastors. And um, we had no debt. Uh, We had a number of scholarships. Almost all of our bills were covered, but but our cost of living was $1,000 a month. And uh, I was looking for a job, and I'd been praying, and I'd asked God, look, Lord, I really want to be a pastor I don't like driving. You, know, you can imagine. It's sort of like a, those of you who are student teachers from JMU. Uh, you can imagine a seminary in a Baptist state. All the jobs are taken up really close. And so you have to drive further and further out. And, and, and so one day I said to the Lord. Um, I'd memorized Psalm 103 and I was praying through it. And there's this line in it where it says, He satisfies the desires of your heart with good things. And I felt like God was saying, Aubrey, what do you want? And so I said, well, Lord, I want to be a pastor, but I don't want to drive a long way. I'm not good at driving. Can it be less than two-hour drive, but at least an hour and a half? Because, and I had all these criteria on it, and, um, and I felt like God was saying, just write the check. Tell me what you want, Aubrey. And so I, I did that. And I said, I, my wife's in school. We both went to seminary at the same time. Um, I'd like to only have one job, God. I'd like this job to cover all the bills. Okay, all this stuff. Well, a couple of weeks later, that exact situation happened. A church, an hour and 45 minutes away, asked if I would be their pastor, blah, 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 blah. And our bills were $1,000 a month. And they were offering to pay me $900 a month. So Janelle and I prayed at our dinner table. Lord Jesus Christ, if this is your will, we need another $100 a month. We said amen, we got up, we walked out to the mailbox, and there was a letter and a check for $100 from a man. And he said, Dear Aubrey, I've never met you and you've never met me, but God told me to give you $100 a month until you graduate or I die. He was a very old man. So we didn't have to go back for a second. You know, this was the second sign. It was very much like Gideon. God delights in doing this. But I think what's going on here with Ahaz is that there's a difference between people who believe but need help and discernment and people who don't want to believe and they're just looking for an excuse to avoid trusting God. That's Ahaz pulling the scripture out. Because at the end of the day, he just didn't want to trust God. Why? I don't know. He didn't. And so he used the Bible to defeat the Bible. And so Ahaz, so Isaiah tells Ahaz, okay, it's over. You've made your choice. You've refused to trust in God. And so Assyria will destroy you. This was Ahaz's moment of decision. He had other moments up until this one, but this one was it. Have you ever faced such a moment? Are you facing it now? I have, as a young child. I faced a decision, am I going to trust in God or not? Am I going to trust that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God and His death and resurrection will save me? And as a very young child, I made the choice to trust God. And then I became a teenager, and that choice kind of ran out of steam. At the end of my junior year, I had been living my sophomore and junior year for myself, not for the Lord. Uh, determined to whatever I wanted. That's what I was going to go for. I no longer allowed the Lord's boundaries to be boundaries for my life. And I can still remember, this was in June of 1990. I was standing, it was very late at night. I was standing on my back porch. I was talking to the man who was discipling the youth at our church. And I said to him, I feel like I'm at this crossroads that I need to repent of the way I've been living my life. I need to tell God I'm sorry. And I need to make changes. And for me, there were three very practical changes. I was dating a girl who was not a Christian. I knew that I needed to stop dating her because this wasn't a good thing in a lot of ways. Number two, my friends, they did not love God. They loved doing bad things a lot more than a Christian does. And I knew that I had to back off and put distance between myself and them. And number three, I knew that in order to really come fully to God, I had to forgive my brother for some things he had done to me. And it, it, it wasn't this ambiguous will I trust and have faith and be a Christian. It was these three practical things. I knew standing at that door, and I'm telling him, I just don't think I can do this. And Robert Shaw was his name. Robert says, you can. You can do this. Trust in God. My whole house was asleep. It boiled down to the next day my parents were leaving on a, on a week-long vacation, and because of some Various situations I had to choose if I was going to go on the vacation with them or stay at home. And I had a legitimate reason that I could be at home in a way for all that to work. But I knew in that moment if I stayed at home I was going to continue in a lifestyle. And I, I was that was decision. That was the moment. And it took all that I could muster to go on vacation with my parents. And to in that way break. Have you faced this decision? Have you ever found yourself, children, teenagers, adults, have you ever found yourself at this moment where it all boils down to the moment? Will you trust God or not? Will you trust God's way? Will you trust that Jesus is the son of God and he died for you and he rose from the dead and that's hard for you to believe? Or maybe it's not, you know, it for, for, for Ahaz, it wasn't, he had all of the doctrine in, 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 in his camp. He, he, he believed all the right doctrine. For him, it was, was he going to rely on God in this dangerous situation? What, what is that for you? A couple of years, that was 1990, I just told you about. In 1992, in June, two years later, Janelle and I were dating. I was in love with Janelle. Um, we'd been dating a day or two. and um, <laughs> Actually, since April the 18th. Uh, and I had this deep sense that God was telling me to break up with Janelle. Um, you know what it's like, those of you who've walked with the Lord, when a thought comes into your mind and it's not your own and you know it's from the Lord. That's what it was. And over a several-week period, I had to decide, do I trust God more than I loved Janelle? Do I trust God holding and giving me my future more than I can envision my future with Janelle. And it all boiled down again. What I'm trying to say to you, it seems to me that these kind of decisions, for those of us who grew up in the faith, it seems that they happen at these liminal moments, these transitional moments, when you're moving from childhood into your teenage years, when you're moving from teenage into adulthood, when you're crossing the threshold from college off into the world. It seems to me that at these... Um, developmental transition moments that God often forces the question. And they cluster around these changes as we're growing up into the world. Now, for those of you who didn't grow up in the church, for those of you who sloughed off God, maybe you did grow up in the church, but you didn't take God seriously, these, these transitional moments can happen in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or your 70s. These moments where it all boils down to a very concrete set of actions, some of which are you trusting in God, and some of which you're not. This was Ahab's moment. You see, deep trust in God translated into concrete Actions is the central reality of being a Christian. The only way to be saved from his enemy, Ahab, the only way to be saved is to put trust in God into a concrete action. And you and I face enemies. Alan, our church has watched him face the great enemy, death. And those of you who were with Alan saw a man who 50 years before had begun learning how to trust God in the face of threats. So when Alan faced the great threat that we all face, he had already learned how to trust in God. And he did. God will save you from death. He will save you from the kind of death you cannot return from. God will rescue you from the grave. He will give you a new body in a newly refurbished earth if you will trust His Son, Jesus Christ, if you will believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, that He defeated death. And if you... See, I don't know why God set it up this way. Right? I mean, He could have made the central fact of the Christian life height. Or a good enough skull that you don't have to cover it up with these fancy coverings you call hair. He he could have made any number of things, but he made the central fact, this relational act of trust, translated into concrete actions. At the center of Christianity is putting our deep trust in God in the midst of risk. Now, some of you, this might be the risk of embarrassment. It's embarrassing in our post-enlightenment culture. To believe that a virgin can have a baby. That, that that's, stretches our metaphysics to the level of incredulity. For some of you, the risk is daring to believe that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in a post-enlightenment metaphysics. God was inviting Ahaz to life. He was gently offering him everything. What about you? Do you rely on Jesus Christ in your situation now? Have you faced, are you facing the moment of decision to put your wholehearted reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about intellectually assenting to the idea that this stuff is true. I'm talking about practical reliance upon God in the context of risk where your own resources are inadequate in the face of the threat. Ahaz had to decide where he's going to put his trust, in God or in Assyria. And God was lovingly telling him, whatever you put your trust in will define you. Assyria is defined by death. God is defined by life. Ahaz put his trust in Assyria and this plunged Judah into the cauldron of Assyrian brutality. It could have been otherwise. But Ahaz refused to trust the God and Father of Jesus Christ and so comes the devastation. Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed since the civil war. Since Jerusalem lost five-sixths of its sovereignty, what's worse than that? Losing the final six. And then the sentence ends. The king of Assyria, for real. In a commencement address at Kenyon College in Ohio, the late, great David Foster Wallace said this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Everybody trusts in something. The only choice we get is what we choose to trust. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wicked Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you trust will eat you alive. If you trust in money and things, if that's where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you're enough. Trust your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Trust power. You will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Trust your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This thing that he's putting his finger on is we become like what we trust. Faith. Is about entrusting your security and your future to the attentiveness of Yahweh. To count Jesus' attention of you as adequate. No matter what you're facing. Faith is placing yourself in the reliable care of another. You see, deep trust in God is the central reality of being a Christian. So some of you who are not Christians, will you please? The the choice you're facing is life and death. It really, really is. Those of you who are Christians... Those of you who, like me, you've already passed through these momentous moments and you've already signed up and you've already declared allegiance. Don't ever assume God won't keep bringing you back to the moment of decision. Are you there now? Faith matters to concrete decisions In the real world, what decisions are you facing where faith leads to a different route than non-faith? Let's pray.